Salutations, cinema goers, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallagher. And we're two Oklahoma-based Midwestern movie buffs, here to review movies and chew bubblegum. And we're all out of bubblegum. On today's show, we're reviewing Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Then in special features, we'll be discussing Tom f***ing Cruise, Man, Myth, Legend. Plus, a listener weighs in on our review of Trainwreck. And as always, we'll wrap up the show with some really rad recommendations. But first... A bit of comic book-related news that won't anger or bore me to tears. Hunter and I recently interviewed Paul Wizikowski and John Samariva, the co-creator and penciler, respectively, behind Rexodus, the new Dark Horse comic series about gun-toting space dinosaurs. Pique your interest? Have a listen. What if dinosaurs didn't go extinct, but actually escaped to the deepest depths of space? And what if a band of these reptilian rebels formed a ragtag posse of space pirates, armed with snappy one-liners and magma-powered rifles. This is the idea behind Rexodus, the new four-issue series from Dark Horse Comics, which can best be described as a cross between Firefly and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, only with, you know, dinosaurs. If you're like me, you probably read Rexodus with both excitement and melancholy. Excitement because, duh, it's about gun-toting space dinosaurs. Melancholy because you'll wonder why this wasn't a Saturday morning cartoon show when you were a kid, and why the universe is so cruel and unjust. Here in our Tulsa based studio to talk about Rexodus is the co creator of the series, Paul Wisikowski. And joining us via Skype from Australia is series penciler, John Samariva. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, so good to be here. Likewise. All right, Paul, as series co creator, we'll start with you. Rather than the elevator speech, could you give us the San Diego Comic Con easily digestible speech about what this is about? So, Rexodus is about dinosaurs in space. And uh, we love to say it's as simple as they didn't die, they left. And, and so for us, Rexodus is about this ragtag team of uh, dinosaurs who uh, are traveling around the galaxies and have all these adventures. But all that starts with them leaving the planet. And so this book, this, this quite literally launching point for our story, is the moment that dinosaurs as a race abandon Earth. And what is that like? Why are they leaving? Who gets left behind? Uh, our, our inaugural story is that moment. And so who are your central characters in this? Okay, so we've got Kelvin Ceridian, and he's our hero. He's a dinosaur, um, an Acrocanthosaurus. I can't believe I got that out right. Uh, I think that's the first time I've ever said that right the first time. Um, but he has got a team, uh, a small team around him, uh, Torque, Thud, Cinder, Newt, and, and those are the dinosaurs that kind of uh, are a part of the ship and the storyline. They uh, have these adventures together. Uh, but then the human component, we have this amazing, young woman, Amber Dixon, she gets caught up in this adventure and has to uh, connect with Kelvin. And um, the, the theme, the thread that we do that with is, is fatherhood and family. They each uh, lose their father or in the process of losing their father, and they identify with that. And uh, that kind of becomes the, the beginning of them choosing to work to, uh, together. And so then there's other characters, certainly throughout the book. Um, there's Zan, who's this kind of religious leader, uh, kind of running the, the show back on the new planet uh, that dinosaurs have, have landed on and, and colonized. Uh, there's his royal enforcers, and there's the, the Arch-Chancellor Crag, who is their uh, president or prime minister or king. 
And um, and then back on Earth, there's a few other characters. Um, you know, there's uh, Amber's father, uh, Professor Dixon. He's uh, the leading paleontologist on Earth. And uh, and then there's there's a few other characters like uh, Mr. Crone, who's this uh, oil tycoon type, perfect evil bad guy name by the <laughs> way, Mr. Crone. Crone. Yeah, I think that's how you say it. What you just said, the thing that really struck out at me was the father element. So mm. why don't you tell us a little bit about where this idea came from? So this idea started out as a short story. Um, the, the genesis of all of this was. I've got two young boys. What would they like? What what kind of stories would they be interested in? And it just kind of got boiled down to, as I was spitballing with a friend one night, um, the very talented Eric Lee, uh, that uh, they love dinosaurs. They love guns. They love space. Uh, those have to be put together somehow. And so we set about doing that. Uh, I wrote kind of this, this story. He Eric illustrated it. And, um, you know, my kids were much, much younger then. This was about six years ago. And so we made it much softer and, you know, a simpler story than what it is today. We've well, had, and I um, hope they haven't outgrown the appeal of dinosaurs. No, in no. Space. Not <laughs> exactly. that you can, but. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say as a grown man, I have not outgrown the appeal of this, exactly. Yeah, this story. Exactly. The fact that this hasn't been done in this manner just blows me away. We, we researched, and certainly there's other dinosaurs, and there's even dinosaurs equipped with weapons, and but they're always still this beast. There's never really this intellect put into them or this sense of humanity, uh, humanization of them. And, and coming back to fatherhood, that was a big part of uh, why do we care about these dinosaurs? How can we make them uh, likable? And, and it was really the, the family component. Now, we are here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And even though that's only about a two-hour drive away from Smallville, Kansas, where Superman's from, <laughs> uh, the heartland is still not really the heart of the comics industry. So how did you take this germ of an idea, this short story of yours, and then turn it into reality? That's a, that's a great question. And uh, the short answer is I surrounded myself with people that, that do this for a living that are much better and much talented, more talented than Did you than just I. happen to know them? Well, okay. So it was in a series of steps. Um, and um, James Farr is in Tulsa. He is a comic writer. He has several titles under his name, uh, including Zombie uh, with an X, which is he's well known for. Uh, he, we immediately reached out to him about producing the story for this, writing it out out um, the next iteration of our story. And then that grew. We I, I connected. I, at the time, I was working at Steelhouse Productions. And so Mark Steele, Kevin Anderson, two bo uh, incredible creative men, um, loved the idea. They picked it up. Uh, and, and so we had the force of Steelhouse behind us at that point, which they've got a team of creators. And Steelhouse Productions is? Is a post-production production company here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, that led us to the, uh, the desire to take this idea and flesh it out even more. So we reached out to um, Sean Galloway. Uh, it goes by the name Cheeks Galloway. Uh, we'd met him at San Diego Comic Con, and and so he had helped develop some of the character art, taking stuff that uh, Eric had drawn and developed, and just polishing it up, making it its own, aging it up, and then and then uh, Sean introduced us to the the great John Samariva, uh, who's on here with us, and and I tell you, John really uh, opened up a lot of doors in terms of connecting us to other amazing artists, and 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 just pushing this whole thing to a level that. Uh, is just unbelievable. Really, really happy with. Thank you. So, John, Paul touched on this a little bit. How did you get involved in this project? It's usually with this sort of thing, it's a matter of just catching 
uh, an artist at the right time, right time, right place, all that sort of thing. So I had space and, and I was looking for another project. Normally, you know, I'd be looking for something sort of more in the mainstream and that, that sort of thing. But when this project came along, um, I saw Sean's designs and straight away I was just transported to being a kid, you know, watching those old 80s um, Saturday morning cartoons. And I wanted those uh, characters just as toys. I wanted the action figures, you know, hmm. and and that just got me really excited about the, the project and I just wanted to know more. I mean, I, I was basically sold as soon as I, I saw... You know, I mean, it, it sells itself, doesn't it? The dinosaurs with the guns, you know, and, and just such cool designs. And I, I was like, yeah, man, I'll, I'd love to work on this. Well, and I love that you described it as the 80s Saturday morning cartoon, because I think that's the appeal of it beyond just dinosaurs in space. But actually, when you look at it, it feels familiar yeah. and almost nostalgic, yeah. while at the same time being something original. So to that point, what have uh, what has your, been your contributions to this series so far? Basically, I was uh, given the, the script, um, which was already written, and um, Sean had designed the, the main core group of characters. My contribution was to adapt those into my style, a style that I could work in um, for the comic book. And from there, I you know started penciling the pages. I assembled a team of artists that I wanted to work with, um, people that I thought were going to really give us a, a, a nice, good-looking product. Um, aside from that, uh, I also... You know, was able to design quite a lot of um, characters myself. So I, I pretty much designed all the bad guys, I think. <laughs> Which uh, I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> <laughs> you're just such a nice guy that that's your dark side eking out. Uh, yeah, that's right. My dark side. I put it all out on the paper. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, John, I know this is a little bit comic book 101, but for our listeners, what exactly does a penciler do? Um, well, literally, it's uh, exactly what it sounds like. You, you pick up a pencil and you um, you're the guy that puts down that initial first idea down. So. Um, the things that I'm really concentrating on there are the storytelling, you know, how that story is going to flow from panel to panel, um, you know, trying to keep the characters as consistent as possible so they're recognizable, you know, as you, as you go from page to page and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, ultimately just having that, that vision so that um, you can pass on notes to the inker and the colorist as, as needed and get that, I don't know, nice finished solid look, I suppose. Um, but... You know, if you want to boil it down to its most simple thing, it's just drawing with a pencil. But to add, you know, to that, I, as a video guy myself, I would, I would, I am equate it to being the director of photography of a, of a film. Yeah, uh, responsible for the framing and the blocking, and and what is the camera seeing? What does the viewer see in each panel? Yeah, um, yeah. You brought so much to that. There's so much in terms of the layout of every panel. Uh, that you you see the emotion in their faces, you see the uh, action and the movement in them. I mean, it's it, there's so much that you do and brought to the table from a description of what it could be. You know, you you took words of what it could be and actually drew it out uh, in in all of its final positioning and and uh, to do that panel after panel after panel for ninety six pages. I, I, <laughs> you have a gift. Uh, <laughs> thank you, amazing. thank you. So yeah, a giant intercontinental uh, group hug. <laughs> yes, I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And high fives all around. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, the, you know, the, it's so weird being a, a comic book artist because you're really. Um, using so many different elements to create those pages. You know, you, you've got the graphic design side of you, which is, you know, literally the layout and, and that visual language of going left to right and top to bottom and trying to keep that always consistent so that, you know, I, I hate when um, I'm reading a comic book and if you get lost between those panels, you don't know which one's the next one that you're supposed mm -hmm. to go to. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I always... Um, 
you know, I'm very aware of. But then, then you put on your cinematography hat where you're really sitting there and reading the script and you're going, okay, is this going to be from, um, this panel is going to be from Amber's point of view. So I need to have a low angle because she's looking up at these huge dinosaur creatures, you know. And um, for me, that really gets me excited when I really start thinking about it. It's not just about drawing well anymore you know that that's kind of what it, when you first start drawing you want to you want to do good drawings you want to learn about anatomy and all that sort of thing you know and and um once you once you get very comfortable with your version of drawing that's when you can really concentrate on the fun stuff which is the storytelling you know and like you said the camera angles and mm-hmm. you know am i going to tilt it here am i going to have an upshot am i going to have a downshot a close-up you know all that kind of stuff and it's sort of um at times that's dictated a little bit by, by what's in the script and i I do try to stay as faithful as possible always when, when a writer's given me a script. I like to um, collaborate with that writer and, and have that joint sort of vision, you know, so I'm not there kind of trying to put my fingerprints on everything and, and take over or anything like that. It's just more, um, you know, if you've written a close-up here for a reason, then I'll look at it, how it works in, in the context of the story and go for it, you know, that sort of thing. All right. Arguably just as important as the production of something is the marketing of it. And key to that was some very fascinating marketing for Rexodus at San Diego Comic-Con. So, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you guys did? The effort a year ago, um, 2014, was to take uh, this big story that we had developed. We, we The art was finished. Uh, we had been shopping it around. We were looking to get it picked up. And along the way, that uh, included building this nine-foot-tall suit uh, of our hero, Kelvin, that could could get attention, that would just be this magnet for uh, eyeballs. And, and really, people who see Rexodus, who pick it up, Love it. Uh, time and time again, people get it and want it. So the trick is, how do we get him to see us? And so my my thought, the, the thing that I could control was building this big nine foot tall suit. <laughs> and we took him to Comic Con and we walked around outside in in the ninety degree heat um, for four days. Sorry, I just want to interject real quick here. <laughs> when I initially heard that you guys were building this this suit, I mean, I had read at least a couple of the books. I don't know. Uh, when when did the, one and the, two would definitely have been okay. done? We probably were finishing up three and four. Okay, like I I was aware of the Kelvin character, and when you were like, oh yeah, we're gonna build this huge Kelvin, I was just like, man, how is this? Like, if you pull it off, it's gonna be awesome. But how are you gonna pull it off? And it, and you did, and it was awesome, and it was it was really fun to watch. Like as you guys went out to San Diego, there was a sort of a, a Rexodus hashtag on Instagram. Yes. And, and uh, so at, at first I was, you know, I was following it and it was just Kelvin at different stops <laughs> along the way. Yeah. And then once you guys finally got to San Diego, it was cool to actually see other people uh, yeah. tagging Kelvin yeah. in their own photos. The journey to con, we wanted something to talk about to whet people's appetite to just fill our, our, our Twitter account and so anywhere we stopped, we would break out the the head <laughs> of Kelvin and just like puppet him into a shot. And so, you know, everything from his first time to in and out. Uh, <laughs> his, he really likes animal style, by the way. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, we found this dinosaur museum in Arizona. And so there's this great shot of him, you know, standing out in front of the, the, the fake dinosaurs that us humans think of. Yeah. Um, not Dasaurian at all. Um, anyway, we just had a lot of fun with him. 
and and we got kind of the the, the perfect blend of of we got a, it got picked up by Dark Horse, and you know they were somebody that we were really excited about. We love what they do, um, and and some of the guys that we've been talking with there, they love Rexodus. So just we were really excited that Dark Horse picked it up, and 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 we didn't have to do the Kickstarter route. Then it became a matter of just waiting in their queue for it to release, you know, um, and so that actually was a year later. You fast forward to this year, this San Diego Comic Con was the first open window that they had in in their distribution. So it actually sat on, you know, the digital shelf for a year um, and came out uh, July 7th of this year. So do, can I anticipate any more adventures of Kelvin in the near future? Oh, the answer is yes, um, because the answer is always yes. Um, th- what that looks like and the timing of it, um, it wouldn't be clear enough to to speak to it here, but we are very intent on more comic books and other mediums. Marvelous. Mm. So in the meantime, where can I find Rexodus? So uh, darkhorse.com uh, has it. They, they sell it directly through their own channels, digitally and physically. Um, but it's also been uh, picked up through um, – Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, any major uh, bookstore is going to have it. If they have a comic section or a manga section, more likely than not, they will have uh, Rexodus. And and to that point, uh, I was in Portland for a job two weeks ago, and uh, I was at Powell's Cities of Books. I mean, it's this massive, it's iconic- the greatest bookstore in the world, <laughs> at least in the country. Yes, no doubt. I mean, and, and you go in there, and you just you just feel the immense cultural icon that it is. It's just amazing. It's like the perfect bookstore. Uh, and and sure enough, they had Rexodus on the counter. Uh, so that for nice. me was a big oh, it was milestone. on the counter. Well, they, they had no. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Oh. On the on the manga section, it was it was on their shelf, and uh, so I took a picture of that just just for my own. <laughs> so know. for all of our Portland listeners, go to <laughs> yeah. the house and you'll find Rexodus. And then John, uh, where else can we find your work? Uh, my work, I'm on basically all social media. I'm very active on Instagram, which it's just my last name, Somariva. Um, I use Twitter. I'm John Somariva on there. I have a Facebook art page, which you know everybody's welcome to come and join and keep in, uh, in touch with my artwork, if you like. Which I think that one's facebook.com slash redjart. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out there. Wonderful. <laughs> and I recommend you do. It's incredible work. You can also see my, my, uh, work on, on the comic book shelves every month on the cover of Ninja Turtles, uh, Amazing Adventures. Well, we're all looking forward to that. Um, gentlemen, we are very <laughs> grateful and honored that you two spoke with us today and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on guys. Thank you very much. A lot of fun. Cheers. Due to a contractual obligation with Tom Cruise's agent, we were forced to cut the interview a little short. Apparently, Maverick wasn't too keen on giving up time to space dinosaurs. But, dear listener, Paul and John had a lot more to talk about, so you definitely don't want to miss that. Tune in next week to hear our interview in its entirety. We'll also be giving away a free copy of Rexodus, signed by Paul Wizikowski himself. For a chance to win, just review the show in iTunes, or like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and share the contest with your friends and followers. Here's a pro tip. iTunes reviews are worth two entries. This contest will self-destruct on August 28th when we announce the winners right here on the show. For full details, click the link in the show notes or visit wsampod.com slash rexodus giveaway. That's your mission if you choose to accept it, and you should because, come on, it's a free comic book. Up next, join Chris and I as we cruise into our review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Mr. Chairman, the time has come to dissolve the IMF. 
is not just a rogue organization. It is a disgraced one. Shutting down the IMF is a mistake you may regret. This is Brent. Go secure. Go. The syndicate is real, and they know who we are. You need cooling! A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. They're coming after us with everything they've got. Oh, boy. Tom Cruise is opposing the odds once more with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Writer-director Christopher McQuarrie's entry in the franchise marks the fifth film in which Tom Cruise defies death on the silver screen as Ethan Hunt. This time, he's on the lam, following the CIA's absorption of his agency, the IMF, or Impossible Mission Force. IMF literally stands for Impossible Mission Force. How had I never looked that up? You're too busy saving the world, Chris. That's why. As his old buddies, Benji Dunn and William Brandt, are pushing papers and pussyfooting polygraphs over at the CIA, Hunt's attempting to track down Solomon Lane, the self-righteous leader of the secret criminal organization known simply as The Syndicate. All the while, CIA chief Alan Hunley, played by Alec Baldwin, is hunting for Hunt himself, primarily because he thinks the rogue agent fabricated The Syndicate. But who wouldn't? That group totally sounds made up. They could certainly benefit from a brand consultant. While Hunley's men are bumbling like a bunch of Keystone cops, old Agent Hunt remains one step ahead of everyone. He manages to break out his buddy Benji to support the search for Solomon, which leads to motorbike chases, exercises in underwater agility, and plenty of globetrotting between the UK, Morocco, and Austria. Not necessarily in that order. Hunter, I'm curious. Did McQuarrie's script supply Agent Hunt with superior spy skills to leave you wondering what would tentatively transpire? Or were you proficient enough to predict plot points the Syndicate and CIA likewise should have suspected? Um, Chris, before I get into my review, I thought you and I had discussed that I would be referred to in this episode as Ethan Hunter. <laughs> okay. So could you just go through that entire thing again? I'll, I'll just give you Ethan Hunter. Uh, how did you, how did this work for you as a spy thriller? I would say that the Mission Impossible series, since basically the third film has been interchangeable for me, which isn't a, dis I'm not dismissing it. It's mm -hmm. not a harsh critique. It's hard for me to distinguish between the, the last three films. They're all very much predictable, like you said. Not predictable insofar that I know what's going to happen, but I know what I'm going to get hey, when I go see hey, it. don't put words in my mouth. I didn't say predictable. I oh, asked. If I asked it was, was predictable. Okay, fine. Fair enough. Uh, I would say maybe not predictable, but certainly reliable. You know exactly what you're going to get from mm -hmm. Mission Impossible series. And in this regard, this one didn't uh, disappoint. Uh, I would say that looking at the series as a whole, I recently rewatched the first two on Netflix, yep. which I would recommend our audience do the same. The first film is not your typical blockbuster. It's more of a classical espionage kind of thing with only a few big set pieces in it. And perhaps that's why Tom Cruise wanted to go in the complete opposite direction with the second film and <laughs> have John Woo direct mm -hmm. it. And he's essentially well, they're, they're very much films by their directors. No. Well, and that can be that can be said about the entire series. You think? I, I, well, I think as it goes on, like, well, I guess Brad Bird. With the exception of the last three. Brad I think, Bird yeah. maybe brings something specific to, to it. But I really feel like I guess the only thing that I've seen by McGuire is uh, Jack Reacher. Yeah, he's and, he's kind of Tom Cruise's go-to. Yeah, I, he well go-to screenwriter for sure. I mean, he he wrote Edge of Tomorrow, he wrote Valkyrie, a lot of stuff. But I I felt like this this one felt more like I couldn't really see the fingerprints of a director. It feels 
it, it, it feels like the, the constant thing is Tom Cruise. Well, and yeah, and I would say that if there is one auteur of this entire series, it'd be Tom Cruise. And so this entire time he's been trying to find his, uh, his Paul McCartney, as it were, to help mm-hmm. him tell this story. Because again, the second one, I, not to not to harp on this, but it's like Ethan Hunt went Super Saiyan between the first and the second one because he's turned it. He's he's like well, Neo. he did grow his hair out. He grew his hair. Well, that's the thing is he grows his hair out. It's slow motion and stuff. So he's like a violent Jesus. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And then I think the mission, the second one is the Fred Durst one, which is all you need to know. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's to be fair, there. I don't think they actually you ever hear Fred Durst, but there is the Limp Biscuit <laughs> exactly score, it is, which is really weird. It came out in two thousand, and it has everything that was wrong about that that it's, period between the late nineties and the early two thousands. Yeah, and to be let we'll we'll get to Rogue Nation in just a second. Um, just to respond, but to we your, just so need to harp on Mission Impossible too. Well, no, that's I. You know, I rewatched both of them as well, and I'm really. I mean, Mission Impossible 2 is definitely the worst, but mm-hmm. one, I don't love that much. Fascinating, because um, I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, it's and But I also, Brian De Palma is one of those guys that I can't totally get behind. I don't like him personally, so um, I was surprised to have liked this, liked I, the film. He, he's kind of like Oliver Stone for me. Like, he has a lot of films that a lot of people that I really respect, you know, like, and every time I go into one, I go in with higher hopes. And I mean, I, I hadn't seen this one in probably more than 10 years. I thought mm-hmm. I remembered it. I remembered some of it, but not, you know, the, the set pieces that you, right. You do, you know, the train and the, uh, but it's, breaking into, uh, Langley, Virginia CIA. But as far as uh, how they, yeah, we actually filmed it in the story yeah, itself. Yeah. Um, and I, I was a little disappointed by it. I was also surprised that, uh, this film kind of treads on a lot of that, you know, it's, him, the CIA is sort of the second adversary with Ethan Hunt again. Well, hasn't that been the case for quite a few of these? I don't. I, I, how many of these movies have, has he actually been an enemy of the IMF? The I, first one, I, I guess that's well, no, first, it, fourth, not, and he's, fifth. He's not enemy of the IMF per se. He's enemy of the CIA, right? Well, that's, the IMF in general, of, yeah. It's it's one of those things for yeah. a, for a st- series in which he's actually supposed to be part of this group that's performing these missions on behalf of the government. It's mm-hmm. it's as if he's always the enemy of the government mm-hmm. in some form or fashion. And, and that's another thing that I think, starting with three, perhaps, um, got sort of there. There was something that was introduced there with really trying to bring the team into it. Mm-hmm. That I mean, the first one basically all his spoilers, all his team gets murdered in the first like. 15 minutes and it's basically Ethan Hunt with he gets Ving Rhames he gets him and what's his face the the French guy Jean Renault yeah and and sort of assembles them as a ragtag team but it's still the Ethan Hunt show right Whereas, they're try- I think with that one they're trying to have him replace the Jim Phelps Peter Graves mm, is the leader but mm. anyway and then the second one as I as we said a second ago it's just he's he's Neo yeah yeah and, and so um I mean I don't love three I like Philip Seymour Hoffman in three mm-hmm. a lot as he's he's just a great bad guy, but other than that, I I think it's it's okay. It's pretty mediocre. Um, well, do you think there's do you think there's something to be said that the pat the last three have been interchangeable? I mean, I guess so. I it doesn't really bother me because what are you going to do with this sort of? I mean, it's it kind of feels like uh, it's becoming its own American James Bond in a way, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm okay with. I mean, I'm I'm okay with you know they they set set it up in the beginning of every. Uh, episode i almost said every, every film well practically with, is yeah. yeah uh with with the you know putting you in a place where you know like this isn't the real world with the gadgetry and the the receiving the mission every time you know he receives his mission in the opening uh there there's a 
suspension of disbelief that you have to, you know, go into with like, oh, of course, in this in this case, it's a a turntable that projects, you know, the right. the mission on it. Like, there's no way in practical terms the government would do that, but it does, you know, put you in this fun little world and and tells you kind of what your expectations are, and so I I like. I like it as sort of the American James Bond in a way. Uh, I, I think it works. I, I'll say for, I was surprised with this one because I think overall, um, it is more consistently solid than Ghost Protocol. And I like Ghost Protocol a lot, but I feel like the second half really just like basically you hit the sandstorm is like a line in the sand, uh-huh. if you will. Um, well, did you feel for, the movie needed to end at that point? I mean, it it was too early to end at that point, but it was like it, everything just went downhill. Yeah, we're done. I here. just I yeah. didn't didn't care. And this one, I I still feel like the ultimate like final scene in this one isn't that great. I don't mm-hmm. you know not not to give anything away, but it it didn't totally captivate me. But this film held my attention consistently throughout in in a way that Ghost Protocol really didn't. Um, but I I also don't think it has as great of set pieces as Ghost Protocol. Yeah. Well, let's begin at the beginning because part probably the biggest aspect of this film's promotion has been Tom Cruise clinging onto a jet that's flying uh, a mile in the Which air. Is literally the cold open. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly how the film opens, and you've probably already seen it from the trailer from YouTube. My question to you, Chris, is when seeing an actor perform his own stunts, does that make you more invested in what's going on, or does it have the opposite effect, or is it somewhere in between? I would say it's probably somewhere in between because it's not like knowing that he's doing it. It's it's pretty cool. Sure. Mm -hmm. But I don't need it as long as it's, you know, it's a movie. It's make believe as long as there's no reason. So there's no reason he should be risking his life to do something like that. I mean, if he wants to fine, like I'm not I'm not going to say Tom Cruise, like you're too big of a movie star to be doing this. Uh, but it's, and I, I think it's cool. Like I think, and I, I think he, you know, there is something to that physicality that, uh, he brings to it. And, and so you're, they are able to get away with shots that you wouldn't be able to get away with if it was, if it was a stuntman, you know? Well, I almost think, and we'll get to this in special features, but I think that's Tom Cruise in general is when he's running, he looks like he's running from something that's going to explode. Yeah. If he's, that's just the kind of guy he is. He's very believable in his intensity. Um, I would actually disagree with the idea that it makes it better, him being strapped down. And I'll tell you for a couple of reasons. One is that whenever I see someone in that situation, I'm no longer looking at Ethan Hunt. I'm Mm -hmm. looking at Tom Cruise. In Sidney Lumet's book, Making Movies, he talked about how he would never show an actor playing the piano because then you would you would you wouldn't be saying, oh, look, the character's playing the piano. You'd be saying, oh, look, Meryl Streep's playing the piano or oh, look, whomever's playing the piano. So that that was kind of like it for me is I'm looking at Tom Cruise, not Ethan Hunt. I I mean, I don't know. I, I love and respect Sidney Lumet and his work. I think it's sort of a to each their own. A little navel gazing, maybe. Well, I mean, it's to say that everyone is going to say that. Um, is a little like because that it that sort of thing doesn't really take me mm-hmm. out um so much particularly the the example that he brings of playing the piano like there there's never been a moment when I see someone playing an instrument on screen and I'm like oh well look at look at all the training they went through. well they like, sure are and so. if it's and if the movie's good enough you're immersed and dedicated to it by that point anyway that it shouldn't matter well and okay and so. Part two, theoretically part two um, of that is the only two actors, I think, who consistently do their own stunts are Tom Cruise and Jackie Chan. Mm-hmm. Jackie Chan is such an acrobatic mastermind that he can he is the only person who can do what he does. 
And usually within the scenes he's doing, he's being overwhelmed and he has to be creative. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tom Cruise, it's almost like he's doing something that any stunt double could do, but he's just choosing to do it himself. Okay. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk uh-huh. about the, the other big set piece that's, that's gotten some, some talk, the underwater scene. Where right. He has to. And that, that was that, actually the, one of the few parts where ever, not that I didn't like the movie, but that was the, one of the few parts where ever it did feel a little intense. I was really getting into it. And you weren't getting into it? I was getting into it. Yeah, that was Um, one part. I was about to, I was about to. Yeah, were you dead, Hunter? words with you. Um, No, I I thought it was a a really, a really solid scene. And obviously, like, he's not um, holding his breath for the three minutes that uh, Ethan Hunt is. But there are some long takes. And obviously, there are places where you can tell they stitch it together so that maybe it's multiple takes at once put into one, you know, something wiping across a screen or whatever. But still, like, that it's a pretty it's a pretty pretty marvelous feat and and to to your earlier point like at no time am I like oh my god Tom Cruise is holding his breath for a really long time like it was I was more tense if anything absolutely well and no and that's the thing is it was movie magic it wasn't Tom Cruise sitting there with his breath held for three minutes like mm-hmm. the equivalent of the plane the plane wasn't uh, as impressive to me even though that was arguably should I mean, be more impressive the, the, the plane is fine i mean it's it's one of those things where it's like okay they pulled it off and it it looks cool and they they got shots they wouldn't have been able to get um i i think this is a better uh use of that but to say that like tom cruise shouldn't be doing his own stunts at all like i i disagree with that as well like i uh, i i think had they masked it here it wouldn't have been as intense the, uh, the, 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 the plane underwater, sequence. the underwater sequence. Well, yeah, but my thing is that the underwater sequences, that was again, more directing, editing, movie magic than it was. Let's just strap a guy to a plane. Mm-hmm. And so it still managed to be more tense. Okay. Oh, something else I, I would like to get into here, uh, talking about you, you had mentioned that, uh, you can kind of feel every director in this. Um, I, I feel like Tom Cruise really is the glue that holds the series. Well, together. and I, yeah, I, I could feel, I could feel Brian De Palma, I could feel John Woo, and then the last three. Well, you feel, you feel Brian De Palma in his Hitchcock uh, borrowing, his, his, his Hitch, ripping off Hitchcock, and then that I can't think of it split diopter or the the lens where it shows two two focus link yeah, right. at mm-hmm. once, which really just bugs the crap out of it. Like it can be used well, but most of the time De Palma doesn't use it. It's well. a little he hey uses, look at he me. He uses it to show off. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then John Woo, you've got, you've got doves and you've got, uh, pigeons at some point because I guess they didn't have enough doves. I don't know. Yeah. It's insane. Um, but, and Fred Durst. I, maybe and, that's a John Woo thing. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know about that one. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise as he's been producer across all of these. Mm-hmm. And I was reading an article in American cinematographer about, about this. Cause I saw in the end of the credits that they had shot with the Alexis 65, which for those of you who don't know the. Area Alexa is, uh, it's a camera that's used on a lot of TV shows and films. It was what Roger Deakins has been using for the past few years, shot Skyfall on it, which is partially, I think, why Sky- Skyfall is so beautiful. It's one of the few digital cameras that has a close filmic look. And, uh, it's also what Alejandro Gonzalez and Yuratu is shooting, um, is shooting, uh, The Revenant with, um, for, and I think that's the first feature film shot from start to finish with it. Uh, but this is the first time that, uh, Aerie 65 has been on screen. And so I looked up the American cinematographer, um, article to see how much they used it in. And it was just that underwater scene. And, um, the article mentioned that Tom Cruise, everything else is shot on 35 millimeter because Tom Cruise chose to shoot it all on 35 millimeter. Like it was, he doesn't like the way digital looks. And he, it wasn't the director. It wasn't the cinematographer. It was Tom Cruise doesn't like it. He 
uh, he says that it just doesn't have the same feel. And so that's what he wants to shoot on. Yeah, you you could certainly make the case. In fact, I think it's almost a, a given that Tom Cruise is the auteur of not only the Mission Impossible series, but really his career. Yeah. And, so, and, and not in like you could try to compare it to like Will Smith, who has also had a very, you know, kind of consistency. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I think Tom Cruise is doing something different than than Smith in uh, really taking in, instead of just saying yes, no on on what he he takes. He he seems to really be invested in the the films as well. Well, there are producers. That's their who their only job is to produce, and they're not as involved in their movies yeah. as Tom Cruise is as yeah. a producer. Well, and to that point, um, I think what you mentioned, Christian McQuarrie at the at the uh -huh. er, and I think I may have pronounced that correctly. But the point of that is, is he is probably the most journeyman director out of everyone who's been involved. And I have, definitely, and absolutely. so, and I believe he's doing the next one. Okay. So I think maybe so the first one to reprise, the right? So I believe that Tom Cruise has maybe found his since he's found the tone he wants for this mm -hmm. series, and it's uh, profitable, mm -hmm. and it also makes good movies because this was a perfectly enjoyable movie. He's, we're probably going to see more of that of him just sticking with this uh, with Christian McQuarrie or, versus, uh, say, J.J. Abrams and Brad Bird. They were one offs. Yeah. And, and maybe we'll get that consistency here with, you know, Tom Cruise and the director um, kind of maybe they've hit their stride and they're getting exactly because it seems like he just wants to continue to make Mission Impossible movies forever. He's been doing it for almost 20, 20 years, years now. Yeah. And. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. Like it's, they're not the best films. This isn't like my going to be my favorite film of the year. Not going to go on my top 10 list or anything like that. But I mean, I enjoyed it. It's, it's a fun little action movie for what it is. I feel like that's generally what you go to a James Bond movie for. Um, as well, it's not it's not going to be like oh the best. I mean, other than Skyfall was well, actually beautiful. Yeah. Well, what I would actually say is, ironically, this is almost replacing. James Bond is the indistinguishable spy series because the new James Bond movies, the the Daniel Craig ones, they mm -hmm. actually want to seem to expand the character and have us more know more about him in his backstory. Whereas this, they don't care. Ethan well, Hunt they, is just there. They have, but it feels like they they sort of made a left turn on the last one on on Skyfall. The way it was, it was very much a thesis for like why does why should anyone care about James Bond? And then I don't know if you've seen the trailer for Spectre. For Spectre, it feels like Spectre's going to be going down that road as well. You think I, I feel like Spectre's going closer, kind of veering closer to a traditional James Bond, like with a little bit of maybe a little bit more meat as far as backstory goes or as far as connecting character development, that sort of thing. But it still feels like it's going a little more towards gadgetry, a little more towards traditionally what you would. Think I mean, James I guess Bond. that remains to be seen. But I think we yeah. both agree that the Mission Impossible series at this point is Ethan Hunt just is. Well, Ethan Hunt and his team, like I think they also hit their stride starting with about three in making it it is it is the Ethan Hunt show but also he's supported by this team and this uh he he plays really well with them and I think one of the things that you get in the past few movies particularly this one um that you didn't get in say the De Palma one is you get some great banter here like there's there's a real great tension that builds up whenever they're talking um, well, and a sense in, of family almost in well, but, but whenever they're like in the middle of trying to pull something off mm -hmm. and they sort of, they, they build tension, but then break it a little bit with humor in, in this quick, uh, scr almost screwball style banter, um, that, that works really well. And there's some really, one of the things that I didn't like about the first one going back and watching it, there's some really rough, stiff delivery and just really rough lines that they have to deliver. Um, particularly in like the opening when, when mm -hmm. they're kind of discussing yeah like, yeah look at us we're, we're getting along so well yeah kind of kind of a phony forced and authentic uh camaraderie yeah yeah and and so i i think i think it's working here 
um, and and has been for for a few. I would agree with that. Uh, yeah. I, I guess has been for a few, and then is continuing to. Yeah, they all have chemistry. What about we've gone all this time and we haven't discussed the the movie's villain Solomon Lane? Uh, what did, what do you think of him in in this? Well, two things: you don't name your kid Solomon Lane unless you want them to be a villain, unless you're a hipster and you want to be ironic about naming I don't your know. kid it's, Solomon it's, it's, it's Lane. A pretty, it's a pretty British name. Uh, fair enough. But then again, British people are always the villains usually. Um, I would say Solomon Lane. Everything about him just screams villain and i kind of like that it's a very classic there's no other way this guy could be anything but the villain and i'm not sure who played him but he did a he did a very good job but it's not something that's gonna haunt my dreams he's not like anton chigurh or even uh or even javier bardem in skyfall it's not something that i'm going to remember he's not he's not javier exactly he's just not javier bardem scares the crap out of me and he's not that Uh, but um but it but within the context of this film he is very good but like like the movies in general he's indistinguishable from the rest yeah i i mean i think they did they did some things that i didn't love with and it's not necessarily just solomon lane but also what solomon lane's trying to accomplish as far as they link him to financial collapse, which is a very you know topical sort of thing. They link him to to civil war in in countries, um, and then they link him to this aircraft disappearing, which is a pretty blatant uh, reference to the Malaysia Airlines flight uh, three seventy. So, do you is, think that's in bad taste? Them doing I, it? I do. I I thought it was a little too like do it doing the financial collapse. I think that's that sort of thing is. If you're going to do it, you got to do it really well. And I, I don't know if I, I don't think they did. They they just used it as sort of a, a flag marker for like, mm-hmm. this is who. But then going to, to the missing plane felt just really unnecessary. There was no because it's not commenting on anything that, you know, that plane is still missing. There are still people who have no idea what happened to their their family members. And so to pull it into this Mission Impossible movie, which is just a summer popcorn action movie without – I mean, it's not trying to do anything with it other than say like, oh, this guy orchestrated that thing. I, I, I feel like it's a little in poor taste. But otherwise, would you what did you dig Solomon Lane was? Otherwise, yeah, I, I think he's he's a good enough bad guy. I mean, I, I think the, the guy playing him, Sean Harris, uh, did a pretty good job. I mean, he's sort of I, I don't know exactly what he's doing. It's almost Toby Jones doing Truman Capote in the other Capote film. A little infamous. Bit. You know what? I would have never in my life compared this villain to Truman Capote, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. It, it's it's just it's not full on, but it's a little bit of that. Well, what's fascinating about that is now we've had Philip Seymour Hoffman, who played Capote, right. be a villain, and Sean Harris playing Truman Capote as the villain in this one. <laughs> and um, I I liked you know he to your uh to your Javier Bardem statement. Um, I, I don't think like Javier Bardem in Skyfall was great. I don't know why we keep going back to it, but we do. Um, he, he was super creepy. He, he didn't have to do too much to reach that either. Um, Sean Harris isn't doing too much here either. He's not, he's not twisting a mustache, but he didn't, uh, I, I think I'm on the same page with you. He, he's not going to haunt my dreams. He didn't totally creep me out. Um, he, he pulled off the character. I, I, I enjoyed him. I enjoyed him as a bad guy. All right. Um, I think we've already addressed our favorite parts. We both like this film, but I think we both would agree it's not necessarily something that's going to stick with us Mm -hmm. for all eternity. So I'm going to throw you for a loop. This series so far, even though it's expanded, the team has been very much the Tom Cruise series. Can you see a situation in which Tom Cruise is no longer the headliner of Mission Impossible? No, I don't think so, because I think Tom Cruise is the one who's been driving it from the beginning. I mean, he's been producing it from the beginning. And so it would have to be literally handing it off entirely to someone else. 
to and, go with. Yeah, and so with that said, I think after once Tom Cruise is ready to put up the boots, I would say Mission Impossible would almost be a better TV series, like it was originally. To go back to it, it, it could be a really interesting. They could they. I mean, and that would actually do some character development stuff that uh, could could work nicely. That I think didn't work well in something like Mission Impossible Three. Right, and they wouldn't be as as dependent on having to do the big giant. Fifty million dollars shot set pieces. Yeah, just just do it a couple times a season, and uh, yeah, I I would watch that. I think. Well, I think ending on Tom Cruise is probably the best way to do it, and it'll certainly lead us into our special features later. But first, the Mission Impossible series is always known for having a lit fuse. So next time you watch this movie, what are you going to be drinking to get lit? <laughs> okay, well, uh, most of the time I like to find a common theme when pairing films with beers. Uh, however, I wrote up this recommendation days before even seeing Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and that's because I am in fact a card-carrying citizen of Rogue Nation. That's the super real country founded by Rogue Ales in Newport, Oregon. So as such, I feel it's my civic duty to recommend the official brew of my tribe, which is Brutal IPA. I have a soft spot in my heart for this beer uh, because it's the ale that finally got me on the Indian Pale Ale bandwagon. Uh, I'll be honest, it's not my absolute favorite in the style. Um, kind of, you know, much like, uh, I guess, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, I would say uh, Ghost Protocol is still my favorite, even with its flaws. Uh, but it's still very solid. Now, I'll admit the name is pretty misleading. If you pick up a bottle hoping for a bitter assault on your palate, uh, you're bound to be disappointed. But the hops still have a pleasant floral aroma and flavor, and that's all balanced by a nice multi finish. It's a sharp, crisp flavor that won't knock you out. Uh, pick up a six-pack and share it with some friends while watching Mission Impossible Rogue Nation from a lawn chair at the local drive-in. That's Brutal IPA by Rogue Ales. You know, Chris, I might actually check this out because I don't believe I've ever had an IPA that wasn't a brutal assault on my delicate palate. Maybe I, I'm just not man enough to drink the I, IPAs. I, I would recommend it. I, I think this this is another, you know, the the Brooklyn uh, East IPA that I recommended a few a few episodes back. Um, I would put this kind of with with that. It's you can taste the hops, but they're not just going to kill you. And and the finish is clean and nice. Uh, well, either I should drink these beers or I should just man up and be able to handle an IPA like everyone else. Or or just stick to your line and Googles, man. We know how much you like those. Oh, don't remind me. Well, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation is currently playing at cinemas nationwide. If you've seen us, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Please tell us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break to discuss Tom f***ing Cruise, Man, Myth, Legend.
We'll get back to our regularly scheduled Tom Cruise chit-chat in a moment. But before we do, some feedback from our train wreck review. Listener Phil had this to say. Good episode. It was my first listen and I enjoyed the format and back and forth. I really agree with the Stranger Than Fiction recommendation, Chris, and you've both convinced me to finally watch Raisin Arizona. Please do. But I do think your discussion of Trainwreck would have benefited from the presence of a female point of view. You dismiss Amy Schumer's character as, essentially, a vehicle for jokes and to get from the John Cena scenes to the Bill Hader scenes, and characterize the film she wrote as Amy Schumer in a Judd Apatow movie. I wonder if any women would disagree with that, or identify with her character arc on a deeper level. You never mention the scene at the beginning with her dad and how that affected her motivation throughout the movie, or talk about her relationship with her picture-perfect sister, except to praise Brie Larson's performance, which was great. And Big Lebowski is so, so overrated. <sighs> Phil, uh, I'm, I'm, we're, we're going to avoid the Big Lebowski comment. It's one of those things, I'm, with all due respect to Phil, whom we both know, I'm not sure that we can that, that you kind of throw a pipe bomb at the end of your argument yeah. whenever you say Big Lebowski's overrated. Okay, but to respond to the bit about Trainwreck, um, you know, I my problem with Trainwreck isn't, you know, that it's not so much that Amy Schumer is in a Judd Apatow movie. It's that Judd Apatow sort of hijacked what should have been an Amy Schumer movie. And uh, so that uh, it was a real disappointment in that. And, you know, that character that uh, Schumer plays, I think could have been a really interesting um, character to explore. And it, it felt like they just hit the surface notes on her um, to that point, you know, the opening, it, it felt like a setup and nothing more really, I think a film that accomplishes what Trainwreck was trying to do with the character uh, much better is Noah Baumbach's Francis Ha from a couple years ago. I think Greta Gerwig plays this character who's a little scatterbrained and a little, you know, she doesn't have everything together, but she's still endearing even when she makes you cringe. Um, she she plays that character so well, and Baumbach allows her to play that character well. And I, I think our criticism of uh, Schumer's character here was she was basically just doing what all the Apatow characters always do. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, Chris. And I think the big takeaway from uh, Phil's reaction and then our reaction to the film is that unlike Francis Ha, films are not black and white. <laughs> OK, well, you know, we always love to get listener feedback. So if you have any, please send it to us at hello at war starts at midnight dot com. If I were to ask you, dear listener, do you like Tom Cruise? Your answer is likely to be. Ugh, Tom Cruise? Though, if I were to ask you, what do you think of Top Gun, Rain Man, Jerry Maguire, or the Mission Impossible movies, you'd probably say, Dude, I love those movies, but, ugh, Tom Cruise? <laughs> so what gives? Why the unbridled affection for the films, yet utter ambivalence for their star? Tom Cruise first slid pantless across the screen before most millennials were even born. And while many of his contemporaries must be content with cashing checks for cameo spots in The Expendables, the seemingly immortal Tom Cruise is still able to open a summer blockbuster on his own three decades later. Yes, his star power has faded post-Katie Holmes' couch bounce, but his worldwide box office bankability remains legendary. Love him or hate him, that's pretty darn impressive, and damn near unprecedented. So is Tom Cruise the indomitable movie star, who doesn't need to be popular to be profitable, or is putting Tom Cruise in a film as anyone other than Ethan Hunt, well, risky business. Chris and I will attempt to explain the enigma in Tom f***ing Cruise. Man, myth, legend. So Chris, 
Let's begin at the beginning. What was your first Tom Cruise movie, and how did this film establish his movie star persona for you? Uh, Hunter, this is a really easy answer. I don't even have to like rack my brain for it. It's Top Gun. It's definitely Top Gun. Uh, I got it for Christmas when I was four years old, and it was one of the like couple of VHS tapes we had. Do you think that your parents were trying to get you to be a Navy pilot? Like that I, was what they. I, that was. The I end. don't know, but that was the, they were successful for many, many years. If that was the case, um, you know, it, it, that's a weird, a, a weird movie for a four year old or four or five. Well, you know, I, you know, both you and I are wearing glasses, and all I can say is just damn that horrible eyesight, or else mm-hmm. you could have been Maverick. <laughs> Would that make you goose? Uh, I don't know. It'd probably make me Iceman. I would Actually, much rather no, be Iceman. You know, you're probably Maverick and I'm probably goose, given the, uh, you know, I, I, I'm i married with a wife and you're... Uh, well, hopefully your well, story won't end quite the way Gooses did. We'll, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, Top Gun was a seminal film for me. Uh, I remember I had some fake uh, Ray-Ban glasses as a kid and I called them my Tom Cruise glasses. So, okay. So this wasn't just one of the first movies you saw. It was, it was essential to your well-being as a child. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I wanted to be, I wanted to be Marty McFly and I wanted to be Maverick. Okay. Well, Chris, this is probably going to upset you. Would you like to know whenever I first saw Top Gun? I, I would. In its entirety. First I, saw Top I Gun really in, would. I first saw Top Gun in its entirety four days ago. <sighs> Okay, see, I, I wasn't sure if you were going to – I knew you hadn't seen it completely, so you caught up with it. What did you think? Um, well, I it, I just – much like we did with the Goonies episode where I, I didn't want to rip on something that was essential to other people's childhood, I don't want to do that here okay. either because it's just okay. not nice. It's not nice to do that. Is, do you find nothing uh, redeeming about it? It's one of those things that is a remarkable piece. It's a time capsule in many ways. It's a remarkable piece of 80s cinema. I also, within the past year, saw Beverly Hills Cop for the first time, mm. and both of those are star vehicles that were huge hits in the 80s. And I had just never seen before. And looking at them 20, 30 years later, uh, like I said, they're just they're, – they're lovely little I, I pictures think, from that era. I, I think what sets them apart from The Goonies, though, is these – those two movies are nearly endlessly quotable, whereas The Goonies is not. I don't know. I mean The Truffle Shuffle. That's- yeah, you've got The Truffle Shuffle and Hey, You Guys, and that's it. Whereas like – I mean Top Gun, you've got – you've got Take Me to Better, Lose Me Forever. You've got I Want Some Butts. You, you've got I've Got a Need, a Need – for speed, you've got – you can be my wingman anytime. Well, and Bullshit. You can be mine. I mean I, I could continue you, doing this Well, forever. and it's one of those things. And, of course, you've got the danger zone. And I think if I were to critique this film, I would wind up in said danger zone. Okay. Well, if anyone has hate mail for, uh, for Hunter and his hate for Tom Cruise, please email us with the subject line, I want some butts. Yes. Actually, just do any feedback like that. <laughs> um, so did Top Gun then, was it the film that you had affection for? Was it did, or was it Tom Cruise in many ways? It, it was, I think Tom Cruise definitely carried it. Uh, I mean, but there was also, there there was a lot of dialogue that, that I, uh, you know, repeated as a child. There was that soundtrack, which I loved as a kid. Um, but ultimately, I think it is Tom Cruise, you know, as the star of it. Um, the anchor, really? And, you know, I one that I recently caught up with, I've been doing this whole sort of, uh, a marathon of Tom Cruise films. I've been calling Cruise Control. Uh, I had never seen Risky Business. I had never seen really anything of Risky Business, and that's a movie that I think people only remember because Tom Cruise is so good in it, and it's a star vehicle. It's not a great film. It's kind of a kind of a weird movie, and like a, I mean, the the hero it's played for you know sort of teen sex comedy for the most part, but then it's gets kind of dramatic. But it wouldn't surprise it ends me. in the hero 
making a whorehouse and that's like, right and yeah and, and then and we it, can all relate to that i'm sure but um and then it has an ending that you probably won't get this reference but it basically has a more dramatic but also more unrealistic ferris bueller's day off like race to the you are trying to get in. me beaten up by reminding our <laughs> listeners that i still haven't seen ferris still, bueller's still day a off. war crime for hunter kate's ferris bueller's day off and so that's kind of interesting that you said it's not a very good movie but tom cruise is good in it i would actually say that we we touched on this a second ago if there's one actor who's the auteur of his entire career it's tom cruise which is why he's been able to last so long and survive his controversies do you think that he's just the the smartest script reader in Hollywood? And so even if people don't like him necessarily, they really like his films? Or do you think he's always better than his films? What do you think accounts for that endurance? I think he brings a lot to his films. I, I, I think that's definitely a part of it. I mean, there's when you think Tom Cruise, you think energy, you know, you think charisma, which when you're thinking of him in his movies, it's a great thing unless that exhausts you, which I, I know it does for some people. But then when you think of him in real life, you think of like the Oprah thing. Um, and honestly, like, so Tom Cruise was a, was an actor who I loved as a kid and then sort of like began to not care so much about as I guess as, as the, you know, the whole Katie Holmes thing. I was about to say, well, was it a consequence of that or was it just a coincidence? I I think it was a, a combination of that. And then I just stopped really seeing the movies that he was in i think like there was probably a it's probably a period after the last samurai or maybe war of the worlds where like i just stopped seeing his films like there's a there's a big dry spell there or and which i've been trying to to catch up on recently because i think ghost protocol is actually the movie that got me back on board with tom cruise and reminded me that he never it's not like he went anywhere it's not like he was in actor jail it was just like i i wasn't seeing his movies and so i had forgotten like how good he could be on screen absolutely and and the the my reaction because i i I didn't really quote abandon him my reaction my feeling of tom cruise has always been he's never been my favorite but i just like the guy and i know he does good work Mm -hmm. whenever i saw last samurai was with my dad and he said within the first five minutes um they described Nathan Alger and his character in that as he was the best hero in the Civil War or something like that. And my dad remarked, boy, he sure does like being a hero, doesn't he, Tom Cruise? Very, very dismissively. But then by the end of the movie, he's like, oh, my God, that was such a great movie, The Last Samurai. And in, in some ways, that's that, that describes Tom Cruise films in general is within the first couple of minutes, you're like, you're rolling your eyes. Oh, here we go again. Well, a, a perfect example of that would be uh, Edge of Tomorrow, which came out a couple years. Maybe it was last year. Yeah, last year. Um, which seeing the trailer, I was like, "Oh, this here this, we go again." Was, yeah. was, Tom Cruise, you were winning my faith back with Ghost Protocol, and then you go and do this. Like, I mean, it looked like a combination of Groundhog Day with uh, Source Code with like I don't know, mechanized robot with know, a fighting. shot of Tom Cruise steroids. Yeah, and uh, I wasn't, you know, I was very, very suspicious of it. And so I didn't, I didn't end up seeing it. It's been on HBO lately and I caught it and it was great. It was really like a, a very solid film throughout and not, I would say not even just a film that Tom Cruise makes better than it is, but a really, a really good film through. It's, know. it's very good for him. He's uh he knows what he's good at and he knows what kind of films work for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that accounts for his success. Another thing that's interesting about Tom Cruise, and you can hear this in his inside the actor's studio interview is he's actually a very generous actor, not just a generous actor, but a generous person apparently. But you think of something like uh, you think of something like Jerry Maguire, mm-hmm. which how many stars did that create? It was a Tom Cruise well, movie. Well, you can't for, say Cuba Gooding Jr. Was he, a screwed star that up, he, he screwed that up. He screwed that up on his own, though. <laughs> huh? 
Okay. I mean, he won an Oscar for it. And so then Snow Dogs. Yeah, exactly. But and then something like Top Gun, there were a ton of mm-hmm. you know stars created that, and then they you know they had pretty successful careers. But what's funny is something like Val Kilmer or Meg Ryan, who were supporting characters in a Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, they became stars, but now they're not so much anymore. He still is. Yeah, and he's still kicking like like always, really. Um, and you know, I think if there's one criticism that I was to place on Tom Cruise as, you know, as, as the actor, um, because I don't, I don't know, I, I don't really want to get into the man versus the actor because to me, Tom Cruise is kind of like Kanye West where like, as, as a guy, I, I'm not so sure. I, I don't want to open that can of worms, but the, what he produces, the, the art, let's say that, that he creates, it's kind of undeniable that he has a talent. Um, and I think the one criticism that's very fair, um, towards his talent is he's generally cranked up to 11 all the time. It's, even in life. Yeah. It's well, but even on, on the screen, I mean, the, the characters that he plays are typically these insane. I mean, think of like Frank TJ Mackey. Um, I, that's actually one of the characters that I, he kind of makes me cringe. I can't get on board with because he's, uh, but he's playing it. He's playing it to a T as the type of, I, you know, I'm sure the type of character that, um, he's supposed to be, which is if, for those who don't know, he's the misogynist character in Magnolia, uh, PT Anderson's mm-hmm. film. Um, uh, but I would say if, if you think that's all Tom Cruise can do, check out collateral collateral is surprisingly a, he plays it very, uh, he, you know, he's not yelling all the time, which he has a tendency to do. He's not, he's honestly not running around all the time, which he also has a tendency. I to would, do. I would sort of agree with that. I would say that even Tom Cruise not yelling is yelling. His eyes yell. He's that intense. But he, he really, have you seen Collateral? I have. Yes. Okay. Have you seen it recently? I haven't. Well, but at the okay. same, but at the same time, like I said, even if he doesn't yell just and it's, that's charisma, just his mere presence I, is I, intense. I guess, I guess that's so, but there's, there's a real calming nature in, in his line delivery that I found really uh, it, it, it caught me off guard, I guess, in that he, because I could in my head hear him delivering those lines in a much different way. But, uh, and I don't know if it, it's a matter of, you know, you get a guy like Michael Mann who his characters are always calm and cool and, uh, a consummate professionals, you know, that's, that's sort of his shtick. And so, uh, Tom Cruise can't bring his Tom Cruise charisma in the way that he generally does. And ultimately, he still has charisma. I mean, he convinces the cab driver, played by Jamie Foxx, to drive him around and murder people, even after he finds out that he's driving him around and murdering people. Um, so, so he's still got it, but he plays it in, in a slightly different way. Like, I, I would say if Tom Cruise to some people is like Will Ferrell to you, Hunter. Maybe this is a film that they should check out. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, I know you don't want to do the man versus himself kind of thing. Yeah. I would actually say that it's almost impossible to do that, to talk about Tom Cruise without doing that. Okay. Because to me, he is such an intense personality in general. And within films, he's able to focus that via character. But that's who he is otherwise. Mm-hmm. And not that, you know, we're not Gossam columnists or anything like that, but Tom Cruise is one of those guys you can't imagine doing the mundane things we do every day, like eating lunch or making a grilled cheese sandwich or sleeping. Uh-huh. I, I can't even imagine him sleeping because he's just so wired. Um, you compared him a second ago to Kanye West, and I think that's a pretty uh, sound comparison, except I think Kanye West is, you know, kind of a monster. But um, I would say Tom Cruise— I, 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 
We'll have this. We'll have this debate off mic. Yes, um, I would say Tom Cruise is kind of like the kid in high school who you're friends with, you like, you like hanging out with him, but he's the member of the group who is so hyper competitive about everything that he makes stuff not too fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And so whenever, whenever you're playing a basketball game, which is the equivalent of a movie, Wh- you like that focus. Whenever you're energy. playing a video game. Yeah, be honest. No, exactly. That's who he is. If you're playing a video game against him, it's not fun. If you're playing basketball against him, it's not fun. But if he's on your team, then it's great. Uh And so Tom Cruise within the context of a movie is great in real life that that just that cranked 15, I would say, can Mm. get a bit overwhelming. And so I think his audience, which is a very, very large and loyal audience, still likes him within movies itself. And I would say you and I are part of that group. Yeah. I mean, I guess the reason I I didn't want to get too deep into talking about him as a, you know, as, as a person outside of film is because I don't think it really, you know, matters to his career so much because obviously like if you can go and you'll know, get the, because you know, the, the Katie Holmes jumping on the couch with Oprah thing could have been just the thing that killed someone else's career, mm-hmm. but he's, there's somehow in it there, there's somehow a separation but also something that feeds off of his real life and his on-screen uh persona that you know he he's able to get out of uh to get away from it and and still you know still produce really great characters absolutely and i think the thing there is that i would almost say we all acknowledge he's crazy and we like that crazy within a movie. Mm-hmm. All right. You and I are going to play a little game. Uh, I said a second ago, can Tom Cruise only seemingly be in blockbusters within the context of the Mission Impossible and the Ethan Hunt series? Mm-hmm. You are Tom Cruise's agent now. What would be your recommendation to him to take his career to uh, to its next phase? What would be your advice? It's next phase. So where where do I think he should go? Where, where he is where, right where would, now and where would you like to see him go? Okay. The, two different things. Where do I think he should go or where would I like to see him go? Okay. okay which are, how about both? Okay. Um, where I would like to see him go is going to be a, an easier answer and one that maybe if you know me a little bit by now, you might see as predictable. But I would like to see him do some work with maybe like the Duplass brothers or Joe Swanberg, someone like that, someone who, you know, they're, they're very nimble filmmakers. They're, they're putting out an amazingly prolific, uh, number of films and they're, but they're exploring different genres. They're exploring a a lot of, uh, different things in cinema and they're doing it on a, on a small scale, which I think would be interesting to see Tom Cruise working and collaborating in that sort of environment. Um, and so that's why, you know, I don't think that's his, the next step he should take as far as like a star, because I don't think it's necessarily going to make him a bigger international star. Well, well, what I do like about that answer though, is it's very consistent with what he's always done is he has been very, very smart with going with good directors when they're good. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go with good directors when they're bad. And, and I think, I think there could be some really interesting collaboration there because without a doubt, like there's, when you enter into a film with Tom Cruise, you've got to be coming into it with, you know, the, the intent to have some give and take. With he's it. not going to be, yeah, he's not going to be in the background. Um, and that's, and that's so much the way that those directors work. You know, they're, they come from a bit of an improv background as far as, you know, they'll, their early films were just, you know, structure that was then filled in with improv. They're, they're a little more structured now, but still that it has that, that nature to it. I, I just think that would be really interesting to, to see him play in that playground and that sandbox. Okay. And then where do you think he should go then? Not where you want, but where he should. Um, just keep making Mission Impossible. Movies. I mean, I'm fine with him. I I don't want to say that because it sounds so dumb, but I I am. I'm fine with him continuing to make Mission Impossible movies. Um, 
I, I don't know like where, I don't know if the next step exists yet. Maybe he needs to invent the, the next, like maybe, maybe it's the, the Tom Cruise, totally immersive universal ride or something like that. I don't know. Um, or maybe they need to do a Marvel cinematic universe where all Tom Cruise's uh, encounter. Uh, one may, the- maybe so. I, or, or maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the, the, a spy cinematic universe where actually Ethan Hunt and James Bond come together. Which Jason, which, uh, uh, James Bond though. I, I think you do Daniel Craig because I think they would get on each other's nerves and you would have built in tension there that, that would play very well. Um, but I mean, honest answer, I don't think there's anything broken with his career. So keep doing what he's doing. Okay. Uh, what do what do you think? I would say that what I would like to see him do is if he can find a director who wants to play much like Alfred Hitchcock did with Cary Grant and James Stewart. If he can find a director who will play with his screen image. Cause I think if you were to make the modern day analog to a citizen Kane, Tom Cruise needs to be that character. Hmm. Cause I feel like Tom Cruise in his, I think he would be game for that sort of thing. No, absolutely. Sure. Well, yeah. Tom Cruise in his real life and within in his cinematic personality, much like the line in mission impossible manifestation of destiny he feels like someone who has created this larger than life Mount Rushmore persona. And I would like to see him play someone where that is gradually taken away. And we see who, see what his rosebud is uh-huh. as it were. And I, I I'm kind of curious what your reaction would be to this. I would also like to see him play a villain, but not in an obvious sort of role. I thought he would like have been the sympathetic villain, like the sympathetic villain or like the villain, like kind of like what he played in Tropic Thunder. I wouldn't want to see that, but I thought he would have been absolutely pitch perfect as Lex Luthor because in, in which uh, iteration of, well, I guess it would have to be Batman versus Superman. And I'll tell you why is because Tom Cruise to me represents someone who is a mortal human being who wants to become a peak human being. Mm-hmm. And then whenever you have that persona encounter somebody else like a Bruce Wayne, Who's very similar, but then he's also encountered Superman, who no matter how much weights you lift or how smart you get, you'll never be able to compare to Superman. I think Tom Cruise is that person would have just been I think it would have made the movie, which we haven't well, seen yet, but it would have made it that much more interesting. Yeah, I think Tom Cruise alone in that formula would would definitely raise it a little bit. Uh, but I don't know. I also don't I I'm not sure it would. Totally. He would he would be the best part of that film, I fear. Yeah. Well, well, undoubtedly. So anyway, that's kind of what I'd like to see Tom Cruise do is play with his persona a little bit more. If he can only find a director who is capable of doing that, who has not only the talent to do that, but also the courage to do that, because like we said a second ago, whenever you bring on Tom Cruise, it becomes something else entirely. It becomes very, very big. All right. um, I actually have in my possession an algorithm which was produced together with Caltech and MIT, and it was devised to measure the cruisiness of a movie. And so zero, it goes from 1 to 10, 1 being the outsider's level of cruisiness, which actually ranks very high for swayziness, but very low for cruisiness, versus 10, which is peak cruisiness, which would be like Mission Impossible 2. So to rewind the tape a little bit, because I wanted to ask you this a second ago, Rogue Nation, how would that rank on the cruising scale? What do you think? Because I have the answer here. I want to know what you think. You have the okay. <laughs> According uh, to the algorithm, yes. Uh, I, I would say it's obviously not as high as Mission Impossible 2 because that's probably breaking the needle. Pete Cruz, yeah. Um, but it's it's pretty solid. I mean, if I was to put it in a percentage, I would say above 75%. 
All right. Um, well, it's one to 10. Oh, okay. 7.5. You're actually very, very close. It is 7.2 according to the algorithm. Uh, so but is this like Price is Right uh, closest without going over? It's well, it's, it's science, you know, okay. so okay. That, that, that would be so close. So it's not enough. a game show. It's not, a, it's not a game show. So according to this algorithm, Rogue Nation was about 7.2. That sounds about right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Chris and I could converse about Tom Cruise for hours, but unfortunately this chat is going to have to come to a close. However, we'd love to hear what you think. Why don't you play Paula Wagner and tell us where you would like Tom Cruise's career to go? Just let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. Hunter, really rad recommendation time again. Uh, what do you got for us? Something cruisy? Not directly tied to Tom Cruise, but given my gifts for contrived connections, I think this one's a pretty solid choice. Okay, what do um, you got? We talked about Tom Cruise for basically an hour and a half and did not mention that despite the fact that he is a man of small stature, he is also a very large personality. Another actor who was not very tall but just had a huge, huge bursting personality and charisma was a man named Yule Brenner. Who is a big star uh, in you know from the basically the fifties into the seventies, and one of his last pictures was in from nineteen seventy two called Westworld. Are you familiar with Westworld? I'm not. I have no idea what you're talking well, about. Well, the interesting thing about Westworld is it will actually be remade on HBO in coming this fall, so you can check out the remake. But about twelve years before Terminator and almost twenty before Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton created another situation about robots run amok on what is essentially a theme park. The way Westworld works, it is three theme parks Westworld, Medieval World, and Renaissance World. I have heard uh-huh. of this. Uh huh. And the okay. way they are and the way they are able to produce this is they have robots pretending to play the characters, yeah, one of whom yeah. is Yul Brenner. And in typical Michael Crichton fashion, everything goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Goes wrong goes wrong and event and so the robots start killing people and Yul Brenner despite having maybe 20 lines of dialogue is able to just convey the menace of his character the gunslinger just with his eyes and his motion his walk so Westworld it's it's a if you're a Michael Crichton fan you've probably already seen it but it's it's just really fascinating to see this picture from the early 70s that has so many themes that you're going to see wind up in Jurassic Park and then his books in general, just the paranoia about it creeping technology before we're really ready to handle the ramifications of it. I will say that it's not a perfect film by any measure. It's still very much, uh, it's got a lot of 70s cheese to it, but where it needs to work, it does very well. So my recommendation, which I believe that you can find streaming on Amazon Prime, is from 1972, directed and written by Michael Crichton, Westworld. I I'm really excited to check this out now, actually. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It might be my Top Gun, actually. You saw <laughs> Top Gun at four. I saw Westworld at, you know, six. So. Okay. 
Um, my recommendation is going to come from my uh, cruise control uh, marathon, and it's another Tom Cruise film that I hadn't seen that I caught up with. And actually, it's a Stanley Kubrick movie that I hadn't seen that I caught up with. Uh, there were only two Stanley Kubrick films I hadn't seen, Lolita and, as you could guess, Eyes Wide Shut. And I think the reason that I had avoided seeing Eyes Wide Shut, like I, I own it, I have the Stanley Kubrick box set, uh, but my earliest recollection of Eyes Wide Shut is probably – Entertainment Tonight episodes as a kid, like seeing the the scandal of oh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman making frolicking s- around naked, ma- ma- <laughs> making making dirty movie, and then that subsequently becomes um, dirty director dies making movie with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, and then becomes the movie that tore apart Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. So um, wait, are you saying that that is not an accurate description of what Eyes Wide Shut is? Everything it, you just said, that, and that and that's the thing is like I expected it to be so. And I don't know why, because it's Kubrick and Kubrick, you know, like I, I trust him with pretty much everything. Um, but I, my interpretation of it had always been like, oh, it's just going to be this weird sex thing. And maybe that was it. Maybe it was like, well, maybe Kubrick goes a little, a little in the 2001 area, but it's just naked people. Or and, he's senile in his old age. Uh, maybe so. Yeah. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that this is not, you know the the stuff that you know about the uh the mansion and the the weird party that's hardly anything to do with the movie i mean it's 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 a piece of it but at its core this is a story a very intimate story about uh well about intimacy about a relationship between a husband and wife and how that sort of trust that you get from a relationship like that is both um very rewarding, but also open to a vulnerability that, you know, you generally aren't going to let your guard down with most people like you are with, uh, you know, with your spouse. And so it all sort of plays with that. I mean, it's, uh, Tom Cruise's character here, uh, almost as he reminds me of Holden Caulfield a lot. Um, in that basically him and his wife, they get into this argument. They, they smoke some pot, get into an argument. She belittles him a little bit. And then he kind of goes out on this, uh, adventure to attempt to, he's so hurt by it that he attempts to cheat on her and he fails every step of the way. And then, and then it also ties into, because it's Stanley Kubrick, it's not just about oh, the one thing. And then it ties into this other, uh, weird sort of mystery with, uh, the shadowy figures and the masks and everything. You know, Chris, I don't mean to be rude, but as soon as you said she belittles Tom Cruise, that's all I could think about. After it. Well, He's a and, little guy, folks. And, and honestly, to be to be totally honest, I think Kidman probably gives the better performance here than Cruise. I mean, it's probably a little bit showier, which is a little odd considering that. Well, she didn't really become a movie star until after their relationship ended. It's almost like she was I, so. I don't know about that. I mean, she was she was in she was in Far and Away with him. Well, but that was where a, they they it, met. But I'm, she was she was in Batman Forever. But lest I mean, you forget. well, I but it, it, she was just insert hot blonde here. She didn't really become she, she, Nicole she, Kim in the she movie. Became, she became a maybe that's true. Mm-hmm, I mean, she yeah. was after that working with Lars von Trier and doing. So we could only imagine what's going to happen with Katie Holmes next. I, I guess so. You yeah. you really uh, you really hung up on Katie Holmes having been something and now no longer being something. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that sequel to Mad Money too. 
<laughs> I don't know what that is. If it's it's the reason she supposedly couldn't do The Dark Knight is because she was already committed oh, to Mad Money. Okay, so okay. we that's a movie that desperately needs a sequel. Well, my recommendation is Eyes Wide Shut. I believe it's currently on HBO Go and HBO Now. Um, otherwise, you can rent it, you know, digitally from all the regular uh, culprits or you can evidently just borrow it from chris i'm sure he'd be very happy i, to I do actually it. have a spare copy because uh confession i i have the stanley kubrick dvd box set and blu-ray box set so uh i can loan it out to you well that's a wrap for another episode of war starts at midnight check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter the midweek memo packed with recommendations, news about upcoming episodes, and exclusive articles written just for you. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, it's pretty safe to assume you like us. So why don't you stop what you're doing right now and leave us a nice review in iTunes. It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. What, that's still not enough incentive? Okay, how about this? A new iTunes review gives you double entries for a chance to win an autographed copy of Rexodus. And for even more bonus entries, like us or follow us on Facebook or Twitter and share this contest with your friends and followers. For full details, visit WSAMPod.com slash Rexodus dash giveaway. But if you're the trolling type who wants to talk trash on Tom Cruise, you can tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com or give us a call on that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Music in this week's show comes from Escondido. Find more at thebandescondido.com and catch them at Basement East in Nashville on Friday, August 21st. Tune in next time as we're tentatively scheduled to review the new film by friend of the show, Bill Hader? One day, Chris, one day. No, friend of the show, Bo Jennings' new documentary, The Vertigris, in search of Will Rogers. Keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter for updates. Thanks for listening. And now Chris and I are back to chewing bubblegum. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris and I could converse about Tom Cruise for hours, but unfortunately, this chat is going to have to come to a close. But we'd love, I just said, close again. Just start it, but, but unfortunately. But unfortunately, this chat is going to have to come to a <laughs> That's actually surprisingly. <laughs> but unfortunately, this chat is. You got to start again.